and welcome to Steminist Stories, a podcast celebrating some of the unsung women of science, technology, engineering and maths. I'm Reba, one of your hosts, a massive science nerd with a passion for engineering, space and sustainability. And I'm Nell, an ex-parasitologist and outdoor enthusiast. And I'm Rachel, producer and resident history nerd. Welcome to Steminist Stories. Welcome to another episode of Steminist Stories. Today we're talking about chemistry. Basically, it's the branch of science that involves the study of composition, structure and properties of matter and it's changed through chemical reactions. So that's like when you put your mint in some Coca-Cola and it explodes. I feel like that's my level of chemistry knowledge. Yeah, same. (laughs) So the numbers of women in chemistry has increased quite a lot. It's got a very positive big trend in the last 40 years. Oh, that's exciting. I feel like we never get the positive trends. It's way better than when we did the tech episode and we were like, oh... (laughs) (laughs) So in 1974 in the US, guess what percentage of chemists were female? 11. 15? 7.3. Oh, sad. But in 2014, so 40 years later, guess what percentage of chemists in the US were female? Oh, I guess if we're in a positive trend, I'd say maybe 30. Oh, um, 22. 30.8. 30.8. Well done, <laughs> Rachel. Finally, the being the eternal optimist in the stats is paying off. Yeah, I was <laughs> going to say, I was like, I've said positive trend. Please don't say like 50 and we've we've reached equality. <laughs> Such a nice change compared to some of the other fields we've been looking at. Also, I feel like I was reading biology that women have been involved in chemistry since the start with like alchemy and things. It's really interesting. I think that kind of a lot of chemistry, especially biochemistry, comes from the idea of like healing and the, the medicine person, which is, you know, that kind of that witch idea that I love, that kind of potion making thing. And I mean, even historically, like women doing experiments in the home or like chemical processes was socially quite acceptable. It wasn't acceptable to write about it and create theories and kind of be in the professional sphere, but it was quite acceptable to be using chemistry in the home. I mean, a lot of cleaning is chemical. Cooking, I guess, is chemical, isn't it? Well, baking is basically chemistry, right? I know this sounds stupid, but it blows my mind when you crack an egg, it's all runny, and then you can boil it, you can make it scrambled and fried. Like, there's all these different textures you can get in an egg just from heating it. Like, that blows my mind. (laughs) I don't know if either of you went down the sourdough route during lockdown. See, I went down the banana bread route. Whoa, see, I wasn't a baker, I just watched Tiger King. (laughs) As a gluten-free person, most of my baking ends in just disappointment and rubber, so (laughs) there's some kind of chemistry there that's going wrong. (laughs) Good thing you're not doing chemistry then and you're an engineer. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I don't even know what sourdough is. Is it actually sour? It's got lots of holes in it. It kind of looks like the bread equivalent of cheese. Yeah, so all it is is flour, water and salt and then you can make bread from it. It's quite magical, really. Also, what I love is like all alcohol and kind of fermentation and stuff. That's all chemistry, isn't it? So I think humans have been doing chemistry for as long as they've been getting drunk. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, as a baker, I think chemistry is definitely my science. (laughs) I think it's probably arguably one of the most practical, if not the most practical science. They also say it's a really colourful it's a colourful science. Like the Victorians were really into it because they could make green coloured arsenic wallpaper and that was all... That sounds very healthy. <laughs> but pretty. <laughs> it's all about the aesthetics. <laughs> It'll poison us, but it's pretty. 
It's interesting though, because I think a lot of the names in chemistry are kind of lost to history, even like taking away the kind of female element of it. I mean, we don't know the name of the person who was like, oh, if you ferment grapes, you get wine. We don't know the name of the person who was like, oh, yeast can make us bread, because it's kind of so such an ancient art. Yeah, that's true. Although there's women in chemistry is probably one of the most prominent, most equal scientific disciplines. I think throughout history, we still come across the the issue that women are overlooked. So the first woman we're going to talk about, Elizabeth Fulham, who is an absolute boss. Oh, yes. It's quite hard to place her in a time because we don't know when she died. We don't know when she was born because that's all lost the record. All we know about her, most of it comes from her landmark work, which was an essay on combustion that she published in 1794. So combustion is the burning of things. And it's really interesting because she lived in the late 1700s, which was a time when leadership in chemical experimentation was passing from France to Britain. So in the French Revolution, a lot of researchers had been guillotined or unable to work. And in Britain, the idea of chemical experimentation was becoming quite a kind of respectable, trendy hobby. Yeah. So her husband is a guy called Dr. Thomas Fulham, who studied at Edinburgh University. So it's likely that she was Scottish. That's interesting that you could find out about her husband. Like, why was he recorded in history? So he's he's also a chemist. And he uh, learned that gold could be dissolved by a combustion of hydraulic and nutric acid and then turned back into, into solid gold. And when he came home and t- told her about this... Um, she wondered if it would be possible to use that principle to deposit materials like silver and gold onto cloth. Oh, pretty! And create materials of of that color. Yeah, exactly. So she was uh, she was thinking about it from a from a fashion point of view, really. Yeah, and one of the biggest issues with history is that the only things that are recorded are what is seen as important. And so women's at this time just wouldn't have been seen as important, especially because it mainly would have been limited to the domestic sphere. So, like records of her life, just people wouldn't care enough to document it. And this is a really big issue as well with sort of working class people because the only documents we really have tend to relate to upper class people because they're the people who kept diaries and who were deemed important by society. Yeah, it has the time because a working class isn't going to have a time to sit and say, dear, dear diary, today <laughs> I worked a million thousand hours. <laughs> but she became really into this idea of infusing cloth with metal and started to do loads of experiments at home. So she spent a decade and a half investigating the possibility of doing that and she tested gold, silver, mercury, platinum, copper, tin salts, all different kinds of things and did hundreds and hundreds of experiments. So she's the first researcher in modern chemistry to propose that reactions happen in a series of steps and not spontaneously. So until this point, everyone thought that it was just like, boom, click, and the chemical reaction happened all at once. Whereas actually now we know that it happens in a series of like mini reactions and we can go in and alter it in different ways. And that's huge. So you can intervene in a different step in a process. Exactly. And today we call it reaction mechanisms. She described the process by which light could serve as a reducing agent for metal salts, including silver nitrate. And this is arguably the first instances of images being created through photochemical means. So she basically created photos. Wow. It's really cool. So she basically just invented loads of cool stuff then. So she talks about catalysts. So catalysts are basically something that you add that allows something to happen. Although the word catalyst is not used until 40 years later. She's a fashion setter. And... The guy who uses it and who is the one who's like, this is what a chemical catalyst is and who is in a lot of the textbooks as coming up with the idea of chemical catalyst doesn't even reference her. Oh no. But he's literally describing what she described, just using a different word. 
And she created photos and she created the idea that things happen even very quickly. There's still a sequence to it. And it's really interesting. So in her essay, she recalls her husband and friend's scepticism that she could produce gold and silver dyed cloths. And even though there was like tolerance for women practicing science in the home, it wasn't expected for them to make theoretical contributions to the field. So she did the essay rather than do a patent for the dyeing process because her husband was struggling to get a patent and she was worried it would be attributed to him and not to her. Yeah. Whereas if she published all this work in an essay, it would have her name on it, which is really interesting. So I think it's interesting that she decided to write it as an essay and she wanted to do more experiments. She only, she, she'd own, she said she'd only done 127 experiments. Only. <laughs> <laughs> I've not done one um, before she published it. And in the introduction, she says, I published this essay in its present imperfect state in order to prevent the attempts of the prowling plagiary. Oh, so flowery language. I love that. From assuming my invention in plundering silence. Oh, gosh. I know. Prowling, plundering. It's really interesting. But I mean, a lot of people read it and were like, this is amazing work. It doesn't seem that she really had an education. I mean, obviously she was educated. She could read and write. But there's no record of her being attending university or having any kind of qualification or degree. Um, and she oh, interesting. And in this time period, even being able to read and write as a woman is so rare. Like, she's clearly from a wealthy, quite privileged background if she has that ability. Because so I think the statistics are something like only 50% of women by the end of, cent- of the century can even read and write, which compares to men is so much lower. But obviously, there was no priority in giving women, like, a scientific or theoretical education at all at this point it's just sad to think how many women probably did come up with really important inventions and chemical discoveries at this point because they couldn't document it it's just completely lost to history as well she clearly as well is quite privileged in that she has the time to be sat at home doing these experiments so there's no record of her having children so she's in the domestic space and she's kind of stuck at home and can't really do much but she is free and has the resources to go out and buy the the supplies she needs and the metals she needs and the cloth she needs so it's not just about having the intellectual ability it's also about being given the social opportunity and the Mm. and the economic opportunity to do those things so according to yusenko less than 40 percent of countries provide girls and boys with equal access to education today in 2021 god that's so low in terms of um elizabeth fulham it's quite sad because she completely disappears from history after 1810. And we don't know if she continued experimenting. We don't know if she deliberately withdrew. Um, her contemporaries were very impressed with her discoveries, but that didn't translate into kind of scientific recognition or sustained attention. And she rarely gets mentioned now in scholarly accounts. So we don't really have much we know about her and all we're left with are the words of her essays which rile against a society that thought so little of female scientists. Mm, I mean I'm so glad she published that essay. It's interesting isn't it that compared to the other women we've looked at who we know loads about their actual lives we don't really know anything about their inventions or often their inventions are like accredited to their husbands and stuff. In this case we don't know anything about her and who she was, but we do know what she made because that's the only thing that's left of her existence. It's just quite an interesting flip round, I think. That's tough. What would you rather? Would you rather be known for your scientific achievement or who you are as a person? Definitely scientific achievement, I think. <laughs> 100%. I wish they didn't have to choose, though. It's really interesting, though, mm-hmm. isn't it? Because I was 
I was listening to tech, our tech episode with my mother last night. And um, she's so different to Hedy Lamarr, you know, who we all know her personal life and all her marriages and her Hollywood stuff. Oh, of course. But we don't really know her inventions. And Elizabeth Fulham, we just know that one big essay she wrote. But maybe, do you reckon maybe she didn't want people to know? She could have been a private person. Maybe, maybe. I do think it's interesting though because she she writes so much about how wary I think she uses the word wary and unsupportive her husband and peers are, and I do think there's only you know we talk about women standing up and women being brave and you know getting inspired by all these amazing women, but it, it must be really hard if everyone in your life is going oh just don't do that like you're embarrassing me just stop stop playing with metal and silk in the kitchen. We talk a lot about women like standing up and taking charge and doing things despite the odds. But actually, sometimes they can't do that. And especially like in this case, when you're financially and legally completely dependent on your husband, if he says you can't do something, yeah, you're not going to do it. <laughs> mm, exactly. It's interesting though, isn't it? Because I think there's there's quite a lot of examples in science of what happens if you do have family support. Like the next woman we're going to talk about definitely have family support and it's definitely part of their family culture is probably the opposite issue where they're probably a bit pushy and a bit like you will succeed and oh you got a Nobel Prize well that's not special mum and dad have both got one <laughs> I think science is in their genetics with this family yes it's the complete opposite of Elizabeth Fulham so the woman I'm talking about is Marie Curie who we definitely know loads about and is one of the most famous female scientists that's ever existed but I think what's actually really interesting about her is obviously her discoveries but also she's like the start of this really strong female line of incredible scientists. Like as a family, they seem to just like collect Nobel Prizes. So as a brief overview, Marie Curie was born in the mid-1800s, which isn't actually that long after we lose track of Elizabeth Fulham. She was a brilliant student, unsurprisingly, but was barred from attending university because she was female. So she joins the Floating University, which is like this clandestine organisation for young people and women to go and study in Poland. That's amazing. Is that basically like the Open University? Like education for all, do it from home. On the clouds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but clandestine. So she becomes a governess and tutor, which I think as we know by now is a pretty common route for women to go down. But that's so she can save money to go to Paris and study at the Sorbonne, where she gets a physics and a maths degree. Ooh. Apparently at some point she actually like passes out and comes close to starvation because she's spending all her money on her education wow that's dedicated unhealthily obsessed <laughs> i mean yeah long term definitely helpful for science though oh definitely definitely <laughs> yeah yeah so along with her husband pierre she starts looking into radiation in particular and one of her like early and crucial discoveries is that she identifies that the atom isn't an indivisible thing. So that means that before everyone thought that the atom was the smallest thing in, and she realized that actually there was a lot of stuff inside the atom. Ooh. And then also they discover other radioactive elements. So before there was only uranium, but then they discover polonium and radium as well, which is so cool. Also is really risky work to do to your health because obviously these things are all radioactive. So they're all incredibly carcinogenic. Yeah, so her and her husband actually analyse these elements with their bare hands. Oh, And didn't you have a fact about their cat, Reba? Yeah, so her cat <laughs> is so exposed to radiation that it um, glows and the shed in her Parisian garden where she used to do experiments is still cordoned off and deemed unsafe because it is so radioactive. And her workbooks that are in museums have to be kept in lead cabinets because 
they give off radioactive material. I think they have a half-life of like 2,000 years or something. And they have to be stored in lead-lined boxes because they're so contaminated with radium. Also, her body is incredibly radioactive, so she had to be placed in a coffin lined with nearly an inch of lead in order for it to be safe for them to bury her. Wow. <laughs> it's kind of cool. It's kind of like badass. Like, she's so radioactive, she has to be put in a special coffin. <laughs> I mean, I shouldn't laugh, but wow. <laughs> How did she not have superpowers, basically, with that much radioactivity? I mean, she literally, no, apparently she used to glow. Maybe her superpower was her DNA got modified so much that it became so scientific that all her kids and grandkids were super scientists. I mean, it's amazing that she managed to have successful offspring that she didn't just, like, miscarry and have, because, you know... Oh, yeah, of course. That that much exposure to radiation is, like, so dangerous. So maybe she did. She developed a superpower from all that radiation. My joke is that someone says something about Marie Curie and you go, you glow, girl. Because, you know, she glows. <laughs> <laughs> I think the most impressive thing about Marie Curie is that she's the only person to have won two Nobel Prizes in different scientific fields. Oh, yeah. So she wins her first Nobel Prize in 1903 in physics. And she wins this with her husband, Pierre. He was originally nominated without her, but he actually stood up for her and said that, that he wanted her to be nominated alongside him. Yeah. Which I just think is so fantastic. Amazing. What a good husband. They're like the OG science power couple. <laughs> Definitely. And so she wins her second Nobel Prize in 1911, and that's for her work with radium and polygium. So, I mean, obviously the two Nobel Prizes are really impressive, but she also clearly creates this really incredible home environment. So she has two daughters, and one of them... Irene Jolio Curie also becomes an incredible scientist as well. Oh, she double barreled her name. Yeah, I know, right? I think it's so cool that she decides to like merge her name with her husband instead of taking his, especially considering this was in like the early 1900s. Yeehaw. <laughs> so Irene becomes a doctor of science in 1925 and ends up also studying polonium and specializing in uh, radiology just like her mum does. And then she also goes on to win the Nobel Prize, just like her mum in chemistry, in 1935, along with her husband. Yeah, and to date, he, Frederick, is the youngest chemistry Nobel Prize winner. How old were they when they won it? Frederick was 35 years old. Young whippersnapper. (laughs) And she's just really cool. So her work looking at how neutrons react in heavy elements was really crucial to like the discovery of nuclear fission and she also dies really young after developing leukemia in the 1950s related to her work in radiation that's the thing they're Mm. all dying really i mean they're all dying in the early 60s would they have known that like whilst they were working on it would they know it was killing them i think it gets to a point yeah i think it was less well known Mm -hmm. you have the raging girls in world war ii who are women who work in this factory and use radioactive paint yeah Ah. And because of their exposure to this pain, women start dying and they start developing cancer and all these other horrible things happen. And it was at least partly to do with the fact that they just didn't understand how dangerous this stuff was. Mm-hmm. There was some knowledge that it was... I think when they were getting really ill, they must have known that it was... Surely. And that, you know, and that it's going to not end well. Like these, are, these illnesses that we're talking about, you know, radium-induced blood cancers and stuff are nasty ways to go. Some of the symptoms are horrible. I find it fascinating that they all still go into this field. So, like, Irene's daughter, Helen, also becomes a scientist and also works with radiation. And in her work, she discovers the first artificially created radioactive atoms. Whoa! This is, like, much more stable, much more secure, and then really importantly, it can be controlled and actually used towards cancer treatment. Going back to biology, one of our first episodes, and we look at the HeLa cells, 
And the way in which Henrietta Lacks was treated for her cancer was that a stick of radium put up her, her vagina and stitched <gasps> no. against her cervix to shrink it. And that, oh. I mean, that's the level of cancer treatment in the early 50s. Whereas this work meant that they could study it in a lab much more in detail. And that's how we have modern cancer treatments of radiation therapy, which doesn't kill patients. Also, that's amazing that she did work that would have that could have helped cure her mum and grandma. Yeah. That's really So scary. it's like a really... So that's four women. No, sorry. That's three women in a row, all from the same family, who all work in radiation and, like, single-handedly create so much important science, win three Nobel Prizes between them. Wow, that's really moving. Like, really moving. I mean, we're talking about Marie Curie in our chemistry episode, but one of her nicknames is the mother of physics. She is so pivotal to both disciplines. Yeah, and I like the fact that they all... They all cross between the two a lot. So, like, um, Irene is chemistry, but she doesn't, like, she does include some physics in her work. And then Helen is a physicist, but looks at some chemistry things that her mother looked at and her grandmother did. They seem to take quite a well-rounded approach to science of, like, not being, like... I also think, you know, science is best when it's collaborative. Obviously, humans love categorisation, but actually there's lots of things that cross over and multidisciplinary working and multidisciplinary solutions are often the best. And there's... Most effective, yeah. A lot of medicine is chemistry. We kind of section it off, but actually they are all incredibly interrelated. And I think that's the thing that puts people off a lot of science is they're like, oh, I don't, I don't like how mathematical physics is, so I, so I don't like physics. And I don't like physics, so I don't really like science. And I don't... And actually... It's so vast and it can be anything you want it to be and it's so interconnected. There is going to be some part of STEM you find interesting, regardless of what your interests are. You know, it's just the fact that, you know, a platypus is a mammal that lays an egg and that doesn't fit into a category and that's quite cool. And it's interesting, well, in that family um, of the 185 individuals awarded the Nobel Prize in Chemistry, seven were women and two of those were the Curies. So... That's really, really impressive as well. I also think it's such a lovely family because all the men are obviously really supportive. Yeah, They're not in competition. Whereas we look at like Elizabeth Fulham and she's like, I don't want to paint in my works. My husband will get it. I've not been supported in writing this essay. So I have to publish it when it's incomplete. And, you know, I'm getting quite a lot of stigma. And then you take the curies and look what happens if everyone's just like, oh, it's a great idea. Tell me more. Let's do it together. Let's both glow in the dark. (laughs) That's kind of sad but lovely yeah. at the same time. It's like it's like true love. You want someone you can grow and glow with. <laughs> yeah, it's lovely that Frederick and Irene both won their war together. I think that's really sweet. And I think one of the things I really like most about the Curies is how practical so much of their work is. Like, yes, they're working in chemistry and physics, but they're contributing to cancer treatments. And I really like that kind of holistic approach to science, for want of a better word. And I think the woman we're looking at next is quite similar in that she does chemistry, but it has real world applications, right? Yeah, so another woman that we're looking at that um, had practical applications of chemistry um, in medicine is Alice Ball. She was an African-American chemist born in 1892 in Seattle, Washington. And I think she came from a family that were quite well standing. And her grandfather, James Presley Ball Sr., was a famous photographer and one of the first African-Americans in the United States to learn, I have no idea how you say this, daguerreotype, (laughs) which is a process of printing photos onto metal plates. So this is like the first kind of photography process and I can imagine this is quite complex and they think it's 
might be where Alice took an interest in chemistry is watching that process and getting inspired by it. And she went on to earn degrees in pharmaceutical chemistry and pharmacy from the University of Washington and is best known for inventing the Bohr method, which is the most effective treatment for leprosy in the early 20th century. Wow. And I think with leprosy, I had quite an image in my head when I think of leprosy. I don't know if it's just from media or the Bible. There's a lot of leprosy stuff in the Bible of like cloaked figures and no fingers and all this, which isn't exactly accurate. It's not really how it always looks. But I thought I'd just go over leprosy, which is a disease that's caused by a really slow growing bacteria called Mycobacterium leprae. And it can cause lesions and sores and eventually can lead to like those terrifying disfigurements I think it's really stigmatized and known for. But interesting, it's not actually the bacteria that can cause like your fingers and toes to fall off. It's because you lose the nerves in your fingers and toes from the bacteria. So then they become numb. And then that's when if you get burns or cuts, it can go unnoticed and then infection can happen and permanent damage. So I thought I really didn't know about that. So that was interesting. I just assumed. That must be so painful. Yeah, I mean, leprosy definitely, I mean, it still is, but historically was like one of the most stigmatized conditions you could have. So stigmatized. I mean, there's a reason that like the phrase being a leper or you're a leper is used to indicate that you're outside of society. Like people used to be put in like leprosy colonies and like isolated from the rest of the world. Yeah, that's horrible. (laughs) It's incredibly contagious, isn't it? Well, no, that's a big, that's a misconception. It's not actually incredibly contagious. Everyone thought it was. Yeah, really? It's not. I know that stereotype of like in Victorian times them putting like cowbells around children that had leprosy's necks and people could hear them coming and run away from them. Now I don't know if this is a bit of a myth because it could be but I really love this story because it's to do with Glasgow there's a place called the Goebbels um, and a story that I've heard some of it's based in truth so there was a leper hospital in the Goebbels but they say the name Goebbels comes from gory bells because the lepers used to come into this part of town which is separated by a bridge and they'd ring the bells to let them know that the lepers were coming through and to like stay away but I don't know if that's a little bit of a myth but yeah like you say there's a lot of things to keep people separated from lepers lepers were considered dirty scary sometimes they were called the lazar houses because there's a patron saint of people affected with leprosy that's lazarus wow I mean that's how prevalent it is as a disease it has a patron saint yeah so absolutely wild and it wasn't like a choice most of the time when these people were in the leper colonies. So some people were ordered to go to the colonies and I don't know what the conditions were like. There's some people say the conditions were really poor. So yeah, so it was a really big thing back in the day. Not so much now. It's still going on, but nowhere near like it was because it can be treated with antibiotics, things like that. But Alice's story is set in Hawaii, where she was the first woman and first black American at the University of Hawaii to teach chemistry. While she was there, when a patient was diagnosed with leprosy, they were arrested and sent to the Hawaiian island of Molokai. Oh my god, they were arrested for being ill. That's awful. Especially when it's not that contagious, so they could have continued and not really been affecting people too badly. But So in between this teaching she was doing at the University of Hawaii she was visiting the leprosy hospital and one of the doctors there Dr. Harry Holman enlisted her to help develop a treatment and they had been investigating the use of seeds from a chowl mugra tree um, and the oil had quite healing properties it already been used in China and India for skin ailments so they were using this oil just on the skin so topically but if you took it orally you would throw up Um, So they were like, maybe we could inject it, but it wasn't water soluble, which means it can't really dissolve in the bloodstream. 
So when they were injecting it, like it would ooze back out of the fore- forearm, which isn't very nice, really painful. Oh, <laughs> that's horrible. Yeah, so first you've got leprosy and sores and then they're injecting stuff that's oozing out your arm. So just not a nice combo at all. I mean, medical treatments in this episode are horrible. Your <laughs> cervical cancer will shove some radium up you. <laughs> <laughs> so she was working to purify the seed oil into chemical compounds called ethyl esters. And then this would mean they could be injected successfully because they are water soluble. And what she discovered was the acid needed to be frozen overnight so that the esters could separate and wouldn't degrade at room temperature. And this is like the ball method that she came up with to make the seed oil water soluble and injectable, which is massive. And it became the most effective treatment until the 1940s for leprosy, wow. which, you know, her discovery resulted in so many people being freed from these colonies that they were put into, like, against their will. So absolutely massive. But sadly, she died in 1916, aged just 24, <gasps> they say, because of a chlorine gas lab accident because they didn't have like those lab hoods and stuff they didn't have that protective measure so 24 younger than all of us yeah she died very young and even more sadly her colleague arthur dean who was the president at the university of hawaii took her findings as his own even renamed the method to the dean method and didn't mention ball in any of his papers did he kill her (laughs) no i don't think so kind of sounds like he would have (laughs) done Oh, the lamp exploded. Oh, no. I've watched too much Agatha Christie. Oh, he's just so callous. Yeah, absolutely devastating, yeah. But thankfully, the doctor we first mentioned, Harry Holman, he was the colleague at the hospital, and he published a paper to detail her work in 1922. Brilliant. So I think, thanks to him, her work got out and it's now known as the ball method instead of the dean method which is just allies doing the right thing yeah i love that so much there's that lovely quote isn't there that like all it takes for evil to prevail is for good men to do nothing Mm -hmm. so amazing that harry did that and then because of that you know her work was out there people knew who she was and in 2000 the university of hawaii placed a dedication plaque underneath its only child mugra tree which i think is really beautiful um lovely there's also now on the february 29th there's an alice ball day and there's now a alice augusta ball scholarship for the university of hawaii if there's students majoring in chemistry biochemistry sort of thing and if they have like the characteristics that ball displayed in her studies so it's so nice to see she still gets the recognition even though very very nearly she was lost to history thanks to this arthur dean that is the thing is that's that's so lovely that's really i don't know i feel like he's done such a good thing there that he should be celebrated as well because also she died when she was 24 so such a short life like academically what 18 to 24 six years i know and she was even teaching she was teaching she was got those degrees and then she also developed a new process of like healing people with leprosy which is just how many people's lives has she saved and improved though and they were using that treatment until the 1940s so it really did last um and if you're interested there's actually a short film on alice ball called the ball method um and it follows like the development of the treatment and how that senior guy stole her work and stuff i mean i like that in history he's remembered as being a baddie because he should be yeah arthur dean we love harry dr holman but arthur dean i can't believe he renamed the process to the dean method imagine being that i don't even know what the word is to go actually cross out her name it's the dean method also like 
it's not even like she's a young academic whose work she's taken. She's dead. Like she died while working. <laughs> I hope he got haunted. I hope he haunted. She haunted the hell out of him for that. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's awful. I just do not understand taking credit for someone else's work when you completely know that you have nothing to do with mm-hmm. it. Like, what kind of weird egotistical thing is that even? Like, I understand some of the men we've talked about that are like. I don't understand, but I can empathise with some of the men we've talked about who are like, oh, she's a woman and she she can't really do this and I'll, I'll, I'll help her and the work will reach more people if I put my name to it. Yeah, yeah, but this one. <laughs> even, like, this is not even internalised misogyny. This is just, like, being a bad person. Yeah. And also you do that and then you spend your entire career knowing that you're famous for something that you had nothing to do with. Like, what's the point? Yeah. Where's the joy in that? <laughs> yeah, if you can like lie like that, it's a bit psychotic, isn't it, really? It's a bit mm-hmm. scary if you're able to do that to yourself. But it's mad yeah. as well because he was the president of that um, university, so he had a lot of power. And to think that he was doing that, what type of person you must be if you're doing that. Um, on the topic of leprosy, a really interesting fact that blew my mind is there is an animal that humans gave the leprosy bacteria like passed on to and can now pass it back to humans can you guess i will send you something in the mail if you guess this right is it what a monkey? That animal some is. kind of monkey i think it's a monkey um it's a it's a, a rogue animal is it pigeon a, a pigeon okay a pigeon i feel like okay dogs dogs guys i said rogue you pick the most basic animals you can think okay, of rogue, rogue, rogue okay. animal rogue animal Bats. okay wait Bats? No, I feel like bats are quite common. That's a common uh, pathogen harboring animal. Okay, so an an uncommon pathogen harboring. Okay, not necessarily uncommon, but just like I didn't. I just definitely didn't expect goldfish. Goldfish. (laughs) (laughs) Um, cow. A cow. Okay, it's actually an armadillo. What? What? (laughs) I I was like, how? It's got like a hard shell. How can anything be swapping whatever? I don't even know. But yeah, armadillos. I like that instantly you asked that question. My mind just forgot all animals that weren't (laughs) ones I see every day. But yeah, armadillos are the only other animal besides humans known to get leprosy. What a wild one. That is so interesting. That is a rogue animal. We could have been here for ages and I wouldn't have guessed that. What a rogue way to end the episode, just talking randomly about armadillo leprosy. I think it's been really nice to actually talk about a positive part of STEM for women. And allies raising women as well. That's been a really nice... We love that. (laughs) People supporting truth. There's always a way, always a way to get your work out there. Yeah, thank you very much for listening. And I hope you join us next week. Um, for our physics episode which should be also very exciting thanks for joining us for this week's episode of steminist stories tune in next week where we'll be listening to more amazing stories from women in stem and don't forget to follow us on all our social media channels thank you to everyone from our behind the scenes team that makes steminist stories possible (laughs) 